Women making waves. Maybe I shouldn't, but I I scroll down a bit of Instagram sometimes. I sort of gravitate towards Insta posts that uh, show how to cut hair. So women or men go in and they want a different hairstyle and the hairdressers really just... I suppose just changes them. It changes their whole hairstyle. It's really therapeutic to watch somebody cut someone's hair. Does that sound a bit odd? Seriously? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yes, it sounds odd. How bored would you have to be? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like watching a painter paint a wall. Yes. And then watch it dry, really. That's it? what my husband says when I invite him to go to the ballet sometimes. He says, I'm never going to the ballet again because it is like watching paint dry. <laughs> does he watch people getting their hair cut then? No, no. Of course he, he doesn't. No, of course he, he doesn't. doesn't. Look, Linda, let's just put this in perspective. It could be like five minutes a week where I think, oh, I'll just have a look at that little Instagram post. <laughs> oh, can't wait to get back to my haircut. So what <laughs> happens? Do, does a client come in and then do they have a chat about what they're going to be doing no, to the hair? No, they're just you just literally pan into the lady or the... You don't hear what you're up to at the weekend? No, no, because they have that, that music on, don't they? There's sort of soft music going on. And the lady sits in there and you just literally see her being transformed. She's got wet hair or maybe she's got tangly hair or she's got blonde hair and it needs to be just resorted. And you just watch and it, they speed up the motion. So within 30 seconds, you've gone from not very good hair colour or condition to somebody who looks amazing. Do a lot of people watch this? I've no idea, Linda. <laughs> Or is it just you? <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's probably just me, yeah. So, <laughs> you don't really approve, do you? <laughs> well, it's it's strange, Susie, yes. to be fair. It's yes. strange that you will actually think, ooh, I must go on to that hairdresser. <laughs> is it the one hairdresser then? Oh, no, there's loads, there's loads of Instagram posts about somebody's transformation from having dull-like hair and not very conditioned hair to having a, literally a transformation. But because it's sped up, it's it's a, a nice, quick fix. It's very voyeuristic, isn't it, in many ways? How do you think that conversation starts then? You go into a hairdressing shop to get a haircut. You're looking a bit of a mess, frankly. You've <laughs> yeah. looked better. Yes. You've looked better. And the hairdresser <laughs> says, wow, you're not looking your best. Do you mind if I film you and put you on Instagram? Because we've got this woman called Susie Thorpe who loves to log in and watch the end results and we'll make you look a lot better. And I'll say, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Can I get a discount, please? And there's no, 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 we charge you extra for for appearance. And it only takes you 30 seconds. No, it doesn't, but it's just the film spinning. But never mind. Everybody has a little quick fix, don't they, somewhere along the line? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Clearly you do. Okay, Susie, to bring you back to Earth and to the real world, I think we should tell everyone about our guest today. We've got two great women again for you today. First of all, we have Professor Catherine Lee. Really interesting story, actually. In the 1980s, she was impacted by the fact that Section 28 legislation was brought in. And if you were gay at that point, it really did have an impact if you were a teacher in school. And we'll hear all about Catherine and that story. And the fact it was actually helped inspire a film. Really interesting story. And our second guest is a lady called Hannah Hagen. And wow, this is a very inspiring story as well. She came up with the idea 
of how she could teach preschool children about computer coding. And it is all about computer coding now. And she started a business called Unplugged Tots. And it's about teaching young children the art of computing. But the interesting part is, it's minus the computers. That's the way to do it. Excellent stuff. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Our guest, Professor Catherine Lee, is Professor of Inclusive Education and Leadership at Anglia Ruskin University, as well as holding the post of Deputy Dean for the Faculty of Health, Education, Medicine and Social Care. Catherine started her career teaching in a secondary school and, as a gay teacher, worked under Section 28, a law preventing the promotion of homosexuality in schools. Her experiences encouraged her to make sure that education is more inclusive for the current generation of students, academics and teachers. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Professor Catherine Lee. Hello. Hello. It's great to have you. It it is. It's, It's lovely to have you here. Did you enjoy your school? days Catherine going back to your school days yes I I did I went to a comprehensive school in a mining village in South Yorkshire it was a a huge school of 2,000 students I didn't find school academically that easy which perhaps you know as a professor you might be surprised about but I was somebody (laughs) who was kind of in the second set at school I tried hard and I knew from an early age that I was gay and I enjoyed sport. I'd always played sport, but I I was a real tomboy. I tended to play football with the boys in the street in my village. And, you know, there's a saying that you can't be what you can't see. And I think looking back, although it was subconscious, that the only people I knew who I suspected might be gay were my own PE teachers. Mm. And so... I decided that, you know, I would try and get the qualifications that I needed to go off to do teacher training. And at least if I was a PE teacher, I I wouldn't have to wear a skirt to work. I'd be able to wear tracksuits and that felt more like me. So I worked really, really hard at school and got a place at what was I am Marsh PE College for Women, uh, which went on to be part of Liverpool Polytechnic. And I did my PE teacher training there. Did you find that you were able to be open about being gay at school? Because I know when I was at school, it was something people didn't really talk about. Did you find that was okay to talk about or was it still quite tricky? No, not not at all. I never said anything to anybody ever. Mm. Any of the girls that were sporty would often get called you know, leather and gay and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So I knew that people would call me that. And so conscious and desperate to fit in, I would really go out of my way then to make sure I had boyfriends and make sure that I was seen with boys. And and, and then I got called slag. And whatever. <laughs> so it's like I, I couldn't no. win. <laughs> I couldn't win. It was the era in which, as I was in my A-levels, a miners' strike was on and uh, it was a mining village. And so it was fashion at the time to wear a national coal board donkey jacket as a sort of statement of solidarity with the, the miners and people would have their nicknames on the back of these donkey jackets and and I remember you know I think one week somebody said my nickname on the back of my donkey jacket 
it needed to be Les. And the next week it had to be Slag. And I thought, well, I can't win either way. Yeah, wow. So in later life, when you were able to talk about it, Catherine, did you find then that things that you did were a little bit easier to do because you could come out and and say you were gay? Was that something that you found relief from? Yes, eventually. I think it's not until I started work at Anglia Ruskin University. So I left teaching and became a lecturer in 2010. So it wasn't really until that time where I started at ARU. I'd actually been a student at Anglia Ruskin as well and done my master's where I'd reflected in my master's about the Section 28 era. And and as a student, I'd been a mature student at that, but I'd been out at Anglia Ruskin. And then when the opportunity came up to get a job there, I thought, wow, this is a place where I could go every day and be myself. And the relief I didn't realise how much energy it was taking to manage that kind of intersection where the professional and the personal meets. Because once you've been a teacher and you've talked to people in the staff room and not given anything away, and I, my last school I was at for, say, 10 or 12 years, you can't, even though the law, you know, Section 28 was repealed in 2003, I couldn't necessarily say, oh, okay, everything I've just told you for the last X number of years is a lie. Mm. This is this is now the truth. And you get you get so used to Mm. being cautious and vigilant and somebody who keeps themselves to themselves that you can't just suddenly say, oh, by the way. So it wasn't really until 2010 when I left teaching and entered work in higher education. I thought, wow, this is incredible. It's Mm. I had so much energy Mm. much more energy to do the job and could concentrate on doing the job without all this kind of noise in the background I Mm. think for years I'd been doing the whole swan thing where I'd been gliding along and my legs were going like crazy underneath the surface Mm. when I'm thinking what have I said who knows what what if somebody asked me what I did at the weekend what if somebody asks me who I'm going on holiday with all of those normal things and you know you have those transactions in relationship, that's how you build relationships with, with colleagues at work and not being able to do that was mm. weird and strange. And it's only when I stopped doing it that I found, you know, I really have found a home at Anglia Ruskin University. It's a place that I absolutely adore. And I think that is because it's allowed me to be myself. And I think in the within the sort of the first six years that I was there, I think I was promoted four or five times and went <laughs> from a, a course leader through to being a, a deputy dean just because I could use my energy in the right way yeah. in, in actually yeah. getting the job done. Being able to be yourself is, mm. is huge. What drove that change then when you were, you were working in a school? What made you want to shift and work in the university instead? Was it just a job that came up or was it something you aimed towards? It was circumstances. My partner and I were living in, in a cottage in rural Suffolk and we had no other neighbours apart from the house next door. We'd always got on with the neighbours, but uh, a new family bought the house and they moved into the house and had, I think, six children and enrolled four of them at my school. And the father of the children went to my school and made an appointment to see my head teacher at the time and said, was my head teacher aware of my living arrangements? And um, and. Mm said did he think that that was appropriate that I should be teaching young young people 
this was 2009, it was just before the Equality Act, and my head teacher prioritised his his relationship with this parent and, and the fact that, you know, it was a real place where parent power was huge and, and what parents thought was important. And, and although I was never in trouble or I didn't think that I'd done anything wrong, it felt like it was the last straw. I, just, yeah. I thought, I'm too tired for this. I really am too too tired. I, I don't need this anymore. And I'd been doing some occasional lecturing work for Anglia Ruskin University at one of their out centres in Ipswich and, and a job came up and I jumped at it and uh, I wish I'd done it 10 years earlier. Mm, <laughs> I wish I did bet. it 20, 20 years earlier. Good grief. That's hard to believe that was only 13 years ago, Catherine, mm. that that happened. Mm-hmm. It's just ridiculous. Hopefully nowadays that just well, hopefully it would never happen. You'd hope that nobody would ever go into a school and meet the head with a, a story like that. That's just ridiculous, really. Yep. I'm it so, is. So yeah. that's that's yeah. truly awful. awful. But mm. you made a you made a positive move from that, didn't you? Which I think that was good I, for you. I I did and, and at the time I just started to do a PhD and I was planning on I you know, I, there is a big difference between the atmosphere, the climate in in schools in rural areas, and I'd wanted to interview LGBT teachers in in rural schools, and I I was struggling to find people prepared to be interviewed for my PhD, and actually what I decided to do instead was to write about my own experiences. So that that I've just described to you became an autoethnography, which is like an autobiographical piece of research. So even though it was very painful, it resulted in me. Uh, getting a PhD, which was a little bit of a silver lining from a bit of a a cloud. Yeah, that is kind of just owning the situation, I would say, actually, and and doing really, really well. I'll tell you what I'm fascinated by as well. You were saying that when you were at school, you were in the second stream. You didn't really do that well academically. I was exactly the same. And then, and as you say, you're, you're now a professor. You've gone on, you've done a PhD. I mean, that's quite, you're a bit of a late starter. That, that shows <laughs> other people. No, it shows other people, including myself. It can be done. You're able to learn when you're older and not necessarily when you're younger. It's incredible, really. I don't think it's down to ability. I think it's down to belief. And again, mm-hmm. having the clarity of, of kind of being able to concentrate and focus and really work towards something. I mean, I did my PhD at the Institute of Education. I had a, a lecturer called Professor Michael Rice, who was a trained vicar, not somebody you'd have automatically associated with a, a thesis on LGBT education. And he was a really, really profound influence on me and and really did teach me how to write. Once I started to tell this story, I couldn't stop. And I actually, I completed my PhD all bit part-time in three and a half years. And usually it's about six or seven to do a PhD part-time, but it was almost as though I had such a lot to to say it was very cathartic and yeah so you know never say never and the things that limit all of us are our own beliefs I believe yeah yeah. you know I think you're right it's wonderful that as Linda said you owned your story and you and it was a complete relief you had the energy to do it and then on the next level your story that you have owned becomes part of a film and that's another level altogether. We, I mean, we were all so pleased that we were able to accept ourselves at some level or some time in our lives. But then you come along and you become part of the story. How did you feel about that when you were first approached? 
to be honest, it was back in 2018 and two young women contacted me. One was a film producer, one was a film director, and they were hoping to get funding for a, a film about Section 28. And I'd done some research about the legacy of Section 28. And I think they Googled Section 28 and probably my name had come up. And could they talk to me? I talked to them. I met with them. If I'm honest, and, and I, it's OK to say this because I've said it to both of them since, <laughs> I thought, who on earth would want to watch a film about Section 28? These two people are never, ever in a million years going to get funding for a film about Section 28. Nobody knows what it is. Nobody is going to fund something so lacking in glamour or widespread interest. And I talked to them at length about my experiences. And it was then I remembered some diary entries that I'd written about Section 28 for my master's. I'll send these to them and that'll be enough sort of thing. And the pandemic hit. I never heard from them again. And I forgot all about them, to be honest. And then I just thought, oh, well, you know, of course they didn't get funding again. Who wants to who wants to watch a film about Section 28? And it wasn't until late 2021 they came back and said, oh, good news. We've got our funding and your diary entries, your stories have helped inspire our screenplay. And I I was absolutely flabbergasted meeting them and them sharing the whole journey with me so generously has just been an absolute joy and, and a real silver lining to the whole Section 28 cloud. It's been fantastic from start to finish. And, I, and I've learned such a lot about a sector that I'd had no experience in. So it's been fascinating as well. Catherine, that's, that's a good point, actually. What have you learned about this whole experience of being invited to become part of the film? And also, you were a consultant on the film, too. Mm-hmm. What have you learned that you didn't realise about yourself and about being gay in the UK quite frankly Um, I learned lots of practical things I learned that I can't act and um, (laughs) I I won't be challenging Olivia Coleman for a BAFTA anytime soon Um, I learned things like if a film is set in the 1980s it's a good idea not to leave your mobile phone in shot (laughs) that's a great one well done I love that Um, So, and plenty and plenty of other practical things like that. I I had a complete respect for how hard everybody worked, what long days they were, how emotionally draining it was. And the, the work that goes into creating, you know, a central character like Jean played by Rosie McEwen. You know, I remember a day we'd probably do something that was maybe 10 seconds of, of the film and and it's made me look at other films now with a, a renewed kind mm. of, or a, or a new appreciation. There is so much involved in doing it and so much work that goes on before being on set ever starts. And I, I guess I, I went into the experience thinking, if I'm honest, it would be a bit of fun. And it affected me quite profoundly. I I remember being with the costume team one day and and chatting to them. I'd I'd sent them lots of photos showing what I was wearing in the the 1980s, out on the town and also um, (laughs) as a PE teacher. And I was chatting to them one day on set and they said, oh, you, you've got a proper job, haven't you, in education? This must seem like a little bit of um, a, bit, a bit of frivolity, a bit of dress up for you, a bit of fun. And actually, it was the most real 
thing and I think probably one of the most real things that has ever happened to me in my in my entire life you know it seems a bit of a cliche to almost liken it to Dickens a Christmas Carol and and Ebenezer Scrooge but it literally was like standing in that gym that had been left completely as it had been since the 1980s seeing somebody in a shell suit with netballers on an ordinary day exactly like I had during my career as a PE teacher and seeing Rosie McEwen as Jean embody the things that we'd spent hours and hours talking about, never being in the moment, always being a couple of sentences ahead of yourself in case you were going to accidentally say something that outed you, being, being so anxious around the kids. I mean, you know, being a PE teacher is about physicality. You know, it's about showing young people how to move, what to do, demonstrating things. And I was so self-conscious and reticent and and anxious. Mm. And to see then somebody else playing this role, I felt so sad and and full of regret, really. Your friends now, (laughs) seeing the film... What was their reaction to it and anybody's reaction that you've known for a long time, Catherine? What, what did they feel about it? <laughs> it's strange. I mean, the my heterosexual friends and colleagues, even some of those that were teachers during the time, have been really quite surprised and said, oh, my God, I had no idea you were going through all of that. Or those that were teachers in other schools have said, I never knew anybody that was gay in, in my staff room now I know why. I've had people who were students between 1988 and 2003 who are gay, who've said, I now understand why I never had a role model. I never had anybody to talk to at school. I never saw anybody like me in the curriculum. I never read a book with a gay character. And thank you for this film because because it, it explains to me why that was the case. And you were at the Venice Film Festival, weren't you, when it was first previewed? How did that feel? (laughs) (laughs) It was really, really emotional. I I mean, first of all, there were only a handful of us went to, to Venice and to be on the red carpet with Rosie McEwen, who played Jean, and Georgia Oakley, the director, and Helen Cifrey, the the producer, and to have my photo taken alongside <laughs> them was it was literally I felt as though I would stepped inside the TV or I was in the pages of Hello or something. So the film got a standing ovation. I think I sobbed most of the way through the film. Um, <laughs> I, but it, but they, it was just. I don't know what it was relief that this story was being told. It was pride in all these people who were, you know, are significantly younger than me. Most of them weren't born during Section 28. And they they'd captured the claustrophobia and the and the time and the the whole environment so, so well. So I, I was just so incredibly proud of them all. So yeah, yeah very emotional. And it's an emotional thing, actually, that we've come this far because things have changed so much in the last 20 years as well with regard to, to being gay and, and or, or being any of the LBGTQ, you know, whatever you want yeah. to be. People are more allowed to be what they want to be now, I think. I think you're absolutely right. And sometimes I struggle to keep up. And I think 
in a way that I'm still on occasions quite guarded. People often say, oh, when did you come out? And, you know, you come out most weeks if you're LGBTQ. Every time you meet somebody new, every time you drop your car off for an MOT and the guy says, is your husband picking it up today? Love? You know, all of that kind of thing. You, and you think, hang on, do I come out now? Do I, you know, coming out is something that you that you have to do. And I, I'm absolutely thrilled when I see, you know, particularly students at ARU be really proud and comfortable in their sexual and gender identities but equally we're a product of our past you know I remember distinctly walking out of my house um, when I was a young PE teacher and I'm seeing the word dyke in massive letters across the bonnet of my little blue Ford Fiesta and having fireworks through the letterbox and oh, oh and, no. and just because the world's moved on <laughs> It's not always that easy to suddenly then trust everybody and be as sort of relaxed and calm and confident as the world is ready for me to be, mm. if that makes yeah, sense. That's yeah. a really good point, actually, yeah. which yeah. is something I hadn't thought about. You're no. right. Yeah, you're right. How important is it to continue producing and being part of films like Blue Jean as well? You know, we need to see more of these films, don't we? Especially for women, I think. Do you not agree, Catherine? Yeah, I definitely, definitely do. I mean, I think it's telling that this is the first film about Section 28 from, well, it's, you know, in schools at all, but from a lesbian perspective. And I think, you know, this particular era, the, the late 80s and early 90s, for the LGBT community, the narratives that are out there are dominated by the AIDS crisis, and rightly so. You know, if you look at the series on Channel 4 called It's a Sin, mm. I don't know whether you, you saw that, yes. but that was very much around the AIDS crisis. And, and you know, it's absolutely justifiable why the, the gay male narrative of the, the late 80s and 90s dominates that era. But there were those of us who were lesbians in same-sex relationships, just quietly getting on with things, not affected by AIDS in particular, but still have a story to tell. I will be forever grateful to to Georgia Oakley, to Helen Safray and Rosie McEwen as, as three incredible women that have told a story that in some ways is not that remarkable. You know, Blue Jean is very much a film about identity and it's about the everyday of Section 28. It's mm. it's not about a, a huge incident on a personal level. And I, and I know talking to other people that were teachers during Section 28 is such a relief that suddenly our story has been told. You've got a book coming out very shortly. Tell us about that. Yes, I have a book that is going to be due out in February 2023 and it is called Pretended Schools and Section 28 and I've used um, the title Pretended because it's lifted from the wording of Section 28 which said that schools must not promote homosexuality as a pretended family relationship and I look back on my own history as a teacher and think that I needed to pretend all the way through. I pretended to have boyfriends, I pretended to live on my own. I, I pretended not to be 
be interested in leadership and, and management because it involved me being more prominent in the school community. The book itself is part sort of social and cultural history, looking at lesbian and gay teachers, but it also has the the diary entries, some of which I shared for the film Blue Jean. And the end of the, the book is a celebration of how far we've come and also a little bit about my experiences on the uh, on the set of the film. So uh, hopefully it's, even though the, the topic of Section 28 isn't necessarily um, automatically uplifting, I, I hope the book itself will show at least that for the Section 28 uh, cloud, for me at least, there's definitely been a a silver lining. So, yeah, Pretended, and it's been published by John Catt Publishers in February. Catherine, what would you say to people in in the same situation as you and younger generation as well? I think my takeaway from all of this is that we are all at our best when we can be ourselves. I used to think that coming out, actually was something that was only for LGBT people. And actually, I've realised since I've been able to come out, particularly in the in the workplace, that we all come out for lots of different reasons. We all have perhaps family circumstances that might not be as we would want, or we might have identified in all sorts of different ways. And actually, most of us at some point in our lives, feel different, feel othered. And I think that when you are able to be yourself, you give other people permission to be themselves as well. Mm. And it's so empowering. And actually pretending to be somebody you're not is such a waste of energy. Thank you. That's a lovely piece of inspiration there. Thank you very much, Catherine. Well, I, I think you're also a remarkable woman, Professor Catherine Lee. Yes. And it's been great chatting to you today mm. and hearing your story. Yes. And thank, thank you very much for coming on Women Making Waves today. Thank you for inviting me. That's all we've got time for today on Women Making Waves. Our thanks go to our guests, Professor Catherine Lee and Hannah Hagen. We're always on the lookout to feature women living extraordinary lives, so please do contact us if you know of someone we should be talking to. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at WomenMakingWaves. And you can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can hear all of our interviews. See you next time. Bye.